Awaken Church. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. And we're actually getting to start a brand new series this week. And so I'm really excited about that. We're going to be going through the book of Ephesians. So it's going to be awesome. But we're just going to go ahead and dive into Scripture right away. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans. Yeah, I know. Romans, not Ephesians. We're going to read a few verses, and then we'll uh, unpack why we're going to start in Romans. So Romans chapter 8. Verses 37 through 39. No, in all these things we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. Paul's climactic statement in the book of Romans is going to be the ground for the entire book of Ephesians. And that passage is beautiful in so many ways. It expresses the fulfillment of Paul's theology and the redemptive plan of God for us. But the reason we're starting our series on Ephesians in Romans is simple. Paul's statement, these three verses in Romans are inspired by what happened with the proclamation of the gospel in the city of Ephesus and by Paul's three years of ministry there. And so for the next six weeks, we're going to be in the letter of Ephesians to the church of Ephesus. We're going to unveil one central truth week after week after week is that the belovedness of Christ powerfully redeems, transforms, and sustains all earthly relationships. The belovedness of Christ powerfully redeems, transforms, and sustains all earthly relationships. So Ephesus was an important city in the ancient world. Paul spent three years there on his third missionary journey. The city boasted a population of a quarter of a million people. Just kind of let that sink in. A quarter of a million people without electricity, all living within about two square miles of one another. The city had a population of about 10,000 Jews. And again, fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. The city boasted one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. The city also boasted a theater that could seat 25,000 people. Just to give you guys a little perspective, that's Veterans Memorial Arena right there. The theater seated 25,000 people. Shared earlier, there's the wonder of a world there, the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis is larger than the square area of a football field, almost 200 columns over six feet, six stories high, over 60 feet in the air. This looked like a skyscraper in the ancient world, dominating the skyline. And the entire city was laid out like a grid from that temple. So Artemis was the goddess, the Greek goddess of fertility and life. The temple employed a a thousand cult prostitutes, worshiping an image that fell from heaven. Paul's gospel, preaching belief in the resurrection of one man ascending into heaven, stood in stark contrast to this worship. 
And Paul's preaching over three years accomplished much. And you can find all of these highlights in Acts 19 if you guys want to look that up and read later. So Paul comes to Ephesus and he preaches in the synagogues of the Jews for three months. Next, he preaches in the lecture hall of Tyrannus for two years. He logs in over 3,000 preaching hours in about two and a half years. That's pretty impressive. Many Ephesians, both Jews and Greeks, believe. Many miracles happen. Many were healed. Even people touched Paul with handkerchiefs, brought them home, and people were healed. Secret magical practices were confessed and denounced. The church, someone had a a gift for numbers in the church because the church tallied up the amount of wealth that was burned in these magical books. And they found 50,000 silver pieces of magical books and practices and spells and charms and rituals were burned. And so in our day and age, that translates in two interesting ways. The first, well, if it was, if if 50,000 silver pieces was just a drachma, just a day wage back then, then that'd be about $5.5 million of wealth liquidated so that the people and the believers in Ephesus could worship the one true God and not Artemis. Or if we want to say actually that those 50,000 silver pieces was actually a talent representing one year's wages, then $1.5 billion was laid down so that people could worship the one true God. The gospel flourished and prevailed in this city. Paul, he finally left after riots broke out in the city. He encouraged the church and he left. And the riots broke out. And make no mistake, the riots broke out over the presence and preaching of the church in the city. The very fabric of the Ephesian economy was unraveling because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the power of God made manifest in his church. And this is a city, Ephesus is a city. Again, it's, it's straddling the, the trade routes between Rome and, and Asia. It's a wealthy city. It's filled with libraries, baths, gymnasium, theaters, coliseums, hippodromes. And at the city center, a temple, the Greek goddess of fertility, a thousand cult prostitutes, all helping people worship. And... This declined because a ramshackle group of people began to believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's, again, let's help, let's let's wrap our minds around that and translate that a little bit. The greatest prostitution ring in the ancient world began to decline because the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news about the identity and beauty and worth of humanity in Christ and what a church looked like unraveled that prostitution ring. This is the translation. Every aspect of Ephesus was changed from family to civic life because the church of Jesus Christ flourished and prevailed. So Paul, he leaves Ephesus after these riots and he journeys to Corinth where he writes the book of Romans, what we just read in Romans 8, 37 through 39. You think Paul's fired up about the love of God? 
Paul is amped about the love of God. He is excited. He has just seen the love of God change an entire city. It's toppled an economy and a city enslaved by a picture of love. And Paul, he sets his, his eyes on Romans. He writes Romans. He wants to go to Rome. But before he does, he decides to go back to Jerusalem for Passover. And he takes with him six other Greek men. Guys, if you just want to turn, turn it down, I'm getting a ton of feedback. So I'll just speak a little louder if you guys want to turn it down. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, he stops on his way back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He stops with the Ephesian elders. They pray for him. And then they say, hey, if you go to Jerusalem, Paul, it could mean your death. Paul's like, that's okay, I'm going. So Paul, he goes to Jerusalem undeterred, and the Jewish leaders spark a revolt, another riot, to kill Paul because they believe Paul brought these Greek men, these six Greek men with him into the temple to worship God. Paul is arrested, but providentially he's allowed to preach by the Romans, and he preaches in his defense, and then he appeals to Caesar that he would be judged by Caesar and go to Rome. He journeys to Rome, survives shipwreck and storms, all to testify in front of the Roman emperor. You guys might have heard him. His name is Nero, and he's kind of crazy and mad. And Paul spends two years in Rome, from 60 to 62 AD, imprisoned, under house arrest, and this is where he writes Ephesians. It's a prison epistle, um, and he writes Ephesians alongside Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. These letters focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glorious calling of the church. Both are really, really simple to understand. We mentioned last week that the Bible is actually written on like a fifth grade Greek reading level. These things are very simple to understand, yet they are so incredibly hard to believe and obey. I thank God that he has given us a book that is simple to understand but it is hard to believe, and it is hard to obey. And so Paul has these two themes that he's going to deliver over and over again. And maybe it's been a while since you had kind of a clear theology of the gospel and a clear theology of the church given to you. But again, simple. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah. This is why we study the Old Testament. You cannot divorce Jesus Christ from the nation of Israel and the people of Israel. All those who believe in Jesus Christ are justified by his death, burial, and resurrection. And then last, his belief is through faith alone, not of the law and not of works. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that was preached and proclaimed in Ephesus and the entire Mediterranean world by Paul. This is the gospel that was preached and proclaimed by Awakened Church. And then the calling of the church. The calling of the church is it's comprised of all nations. Men, women, children, regardless of wealth, citizenship, or age, all are given equal value and standing in the church. The church is sanctified by the Holy Spirit who is given to believers, who also gives gifts and roles for everyone. The church reflects God's renewed humanity in Christ. And last, the church is entrusted with the gospel. This is simple theology. And guess what? We, we add nothing to this. All of these things are accomplished by God. Our salvation is accomplished by God. The glorious calling of the church, the framework is established and carried out by God. I don't add anything to it. You don't add anything to it. 
the church is going to march on because Christ is the head of the church. And so these two themes are so important to Paul. He sees them played out over and over and over again. But he's been away from Ephesus for a little over three years now, going on four. He's been in house arrest, and he hears of the struggles that this young church is having. The young church faces temptations of false teaching, of worldliness, divisions within the church, divisions within families, spiritual warfare, all of these things. Paul is going to address to his letters to, to Ephesus. But Paul prays, he collects his thoughts, and then he pins a letter to the Ephesians. And so what we're going to do, actually, is we're going to go back in time, and we're going to be the church of Ephesus. And again, the, our purpose for going through Ephesians so we would know the belovedness of Christ that powerfully redeems, transforms, and sustains all earthly relationships. And we're going to put ourselves in the Ephesians' feet and seats. They didn't sit in padded purple chairs. But they are going to hear Paul's words, just like we are. And so I'm going to read chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the saints and believers in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavens in Christ. He chose us in him before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us within the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he planned in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him, we were also made his inheritance predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will so that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in him, when you believe, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love for all the saints, I never stopped giving thanks for you as I remembered you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his vast strength. He demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion in every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So the word of God for the people of God, praise be to God. We've just joined the church, as it is said, year after year for several thousand years, listening to the word of God. This is how the Ephesians would have first heard Paul's letter. We are joining with them 
in hearing the word of God, how beautiful and how powerful that is. So let's take some time to camp on some of these truths that we just read about. From the very introduction, from the very greeting, Paul says, hey, I I didn't elect myself, okay? God kind of elected me to this, to be apostle. God's will was to crucify his beloved son so that all men, Jew and Greek, would be saved, therefore doubling down on the beauty of God's gospel and the calling of the church. It's not by man's will that this happens. It's by God's will. And then we see the beauty of that in Paul's next statement. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hades umen is grace to you. And it's a traditional Greek greeting. It's what you say to people passing through the streets. Elini apotheu is peace from God. To the people of Israel, this was their traditional greeting, shalom. We've heard that word before. Peace from God to you. And Paul, in one sentence, is bringing together the mixed elements of the church and telling them grace and peace to you. The church in Ephesus was a mixed multitude of Jews and Greeks, and Paul, he's showing equal honor and inclusion to all of them as they are the called people of God, reflecting the image of God in the church. In one greeting, and and again, this is so important because all of Paul's letters reflect the same greeting. In one greeting, Paul values every ethnicity, every gender, every age, every status of citizenship, and every socioeconomic status. The church is a level playing field. How beautiful is that? Next, Paul writes one sentence in Greek. From verses 3 to 14 is one sentence. Our English grammar can't handle that. But Paul's going to write one sentence. Because there's some things that Paul wants to get off of his heart that this church needs to understand. And so why not just tell it to everybody in one sentence? If you memorize Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, I think that you're doing a really, really, really good job setting up the theology of the gospel and of the church in your life. Because in one sentence, Paul is going to shape the remainder of the letter. In one sentence, Paul is going to shape the remainder of our lives. And this is what's at stake for Paul. What's at stake for Paul is the city of Ephesus slipping down the theological slope and not seeing the riches and beauty found in Jesus Christ. Have we done the same thing as a church? Have we done the same thing personally in our lives? Have we begun to slip down the theological slope and not understand the riches and beauty that we have in Jesus Christ? I would posit that maybe for some of us we have. And Paul is going to have to reset that. And he does so again, one sentence, 
One sentence saying that the belovedness of Christ is going to powerfully transform, redeem, and sustain your life. And this is the indicative reality for Paul. And this all revolves around one preposition. In English, it's in. In Greek, it's pronounced in. Paul is going to give the Ephesians 10 theological truths defining their relationship with God. And note, this is really important. Paul's not giving the Ephesians 10 commands to follow. He's not telling them to go do things to earn the favor of God, like they would have to do things to earn the favor of Artemis in the city. He's also not telling them, like the Jews were very wrapped up, we've got to follow Torah, we've got to follow Torah. He's not telling them to go follow Torah or law. He's giving them 10 truths about the relationship with God. And so let's just run through these 10 truths. Number one, verse three, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Paul doesn't say God has blessed you with every material possession or blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavens. And this is kind of the gateway to the next nine things. It's just like the Ten Commandments. When God tells his children, tells his people that I've rescued you, I am your God, I brought you out of Egypt. Paul's saying, I've given you every blessing. Let's run through that list of blessings so you don't forget it. Verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy. What I love about this is the verb here, there's no subject. And so I'm reading in Greek, and I'm like, where's the subject of this verb? Who does this? Paul uses the divine passive voice, and he does this over and over and over again. It's like the hidden you in English. And over and over again in the New Testament and in Paul's letter, he's going to use this divine passive voice where he doesn't give you a subject, but he assumes that God is the one doing the action and the work. And so God chose us before the foundation of the world. Three, what did he choose? I mean, everybody likes being picked on a team, right? I want to get picked on a team. God chose us in verses five and six. He predestined us in love to be adopted through Jesus Christ according to his will and favor that he favored us in the beloved. Jesus Christ is the beloved of God and this is the fullness of love we see in scripture. Let's look back to the gospels. At this point, probably half the gospels hadn't even been written. Mark alone maybe has been written. But there are stories of how God showed his belovedness to Jesus Christ. Two stories. One is in the baptism of Jesus Christ. When he starts his ministry, the heavens open. A voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. I delight in him. And then right before Christ goes to Jerusalem to be killed and crucified, He meets on a mountaintop with three of his disciples and a cloud envelops them and they hear another voice. It is so terrifying that the disciples hit the deck in fear and trembling. 
And the voice says the same thing. This is my beloved son. I take delight in him. It says that we are in the beloved. The only way possible that we are in the beloved is if we are in Christ. There's no other way. And if we are in the beloved, the same words God speaks over us. You're my beloved. I take delight in you. For in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Fifth, he made, us know, he made known to us the mystery of his will that he planned in him. This is verse 9. And just, just how I want to give you guys something that just, hey, as a pastor, this is my hope and prayer for you guys. Every time you see the word mystery, in Greek it translates as mysterion, it doesn't mean mystery. Okay? So if we're like, oh man, this is a mystery, I just can't know it, like the Bible is so mysterious, like, that's just that's, that's bad theology. Okay? Mystery in Greek means that God has revealed it at the proper time. And this passage right here in verse 9 is saying that God has revealed this mystery of how we have right relationship back to him through his son, Jesus Christ. There is nothing more mysterious about God. He has given us his full revelation in his son, Jesus Christ. Again, it is easy to understand. It is easy to understand but it is very hard to believe. Six, to bring together everything in the days of fulfillment under the Messiah, both things in heaven and on earth in him. What mystery is this? Is that all things in heaven and earth at a specific moment in time have been brought together under Jesus Christ at the moment of his resurrection. Seven, in him we were made his inheritance, predestined according to the purpose of his will. So that, number eight, our hope is in the Messiah. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul is point by point laying out the most beautiful theology imaginable for the ancient world both for Jews and Greeks, you can have relationship with the divine. How does that happen? In verse 9, in him you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Finally, in him you believed and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Note 10 beautiful truths about relationship Ten incredible truths about relationships. Not commands to follow. Not things to do. Ten things about our reality in Christ. And Paul lays this out. And this is a question. Why would Paul take this really, really long sentence and lay out all these really, really basic things that the church should have grasped already. I mean, Paul spent three years there. Why would he share all of these things over again? I think the reason is this. The church and the people and the saints and the believers in the city of Ephesus are still living in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus. 
they are still living in the cities of the world. And what Paul is trying to do is he's saying, your thinking is still trapped in this city. But your theology and your thinking should be rooted in the heavens because God has accomplished all of these things. Paul is saying, stop living in the cities of the world and start living in the kingdom of God because the cities of the world, the cities of the world, they're not going to redeem or transform or sustain any of your earthly relationships. They're not. And so Paul moves from these 10 truths to a prayer. But before he does so, he acknowledges one thing in verse 15, and this is really important. Paul says he has heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Greek, he's heard about their faith in Tokurio Isu. He is saying he's heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Caesar is not their Lord. Get out of the city that Caesar is the Lord and get into the city where Christ is reigning and ruling from the heavens. And this is what Paul is trying to tell them. And so then he says, all of these realities are yours because you've believed in faith. Isn't this beautiful? He runs through all of these great realities. And if you're sitting like you guys are now, and you might be wondering, how, how do I have all of these spiritual blessings promised to me? Paul just given you the answer. I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these blessings and spiritual truths, Paul just passes on to the Ephesian church because he's heard about their faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul then gets two things that is on his heart to pray for them. And so Paul prays this for them. Number one, God would give uh, the church of Ephesus a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. And the next thing that Paul prays for them, that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened so they may know three things. The hope of his calling, the glorious riches of his inheritance, the immeasurable greatness of his power to those who believe. And Paul prays this prayer, and this is a good prayer. I mean, this is a great prayer. I have prayed this prayer that God would do the same thing in my life. I mean, right? Let's pray this prayer. Maybe God will answer this prayer. This is what we want. But Paul doesn't create any tension here. You think he would, right? You think Paul, as this orator and preacher and letter writer, would create this prayer and saying, I'm praying this prayer for you guys, okay? Stop, full stop, tension created. All right, if, when will that prayer be answered? Oh, I hope God answers that prayer. I, I want to know, have knowledge and wisdom and revelation. Paul doesn't create any tension here. In fact, in verse 20, he answers the first prayer. In verses 22 and 23, he answers the second prayer for the Ephesians church. Again, the divine passive is used. God is at work. We do not see him, but the first prayer, that God would open our hearts. I'm sorry, that God would, that God would give us a spirit of wisdom 
and revelation, the knowledge of Christ, is answered by this. This was accomplished in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him beside his right hand in the heavens. Verse 20. Prayer answered. The wisdom, the knowledge, the revelation that you need has been given to you in Christ Jesus. And then the second prayer request, these beautiful things, the hope of our calling. Do we not all want more hope in our lives? The glorious riches of God's inheritance, the immeasurable greatness of his power. All those things, our eyes of our hearts are enlightened because it says Jesus Christ rules and reigns and the body of Christ, the church, contains the fullness of the one who wants to give you everything in every way relating to this. The hope of your calling, the immeasurable riches of God's inheritance and the greatness of his power. Paul locates that in the church because the church is Christ's body. And yet, we so often amputate ourselves from the church. So, Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church is answered two ways. First, one, the simple past event standing at the center of all Scripture. Jesus Christ reveals God's power through his resurrection. Second, the church, the body of Christ, is the place where we are beloved in Christ and we have the belovedness that powerfully sustains, redeems, and transforms all of our relationships. This is the beauty of chapter one. And I know, guys, this was a little theological. I understand that. We're going to get a whole lot more practical as this letter goes on. But do you see how Paul has to do that? Paul has to start with the rich, beautiful, theological vision of Jesus Christ in the church. Because nothing else is going to make sense if you don't have that. And in America, what we want is we want the practicals. We want the, the things to do. We want the little things that we can do to have a better walk with, with God, a better relationship with people. We want things, we want these little things that we can do. I just got to have one nugget out of Scripture today. And here's Paul saying, I don't want you to have one nugget. I want you to have one sentence that is going to transform your life. We settle for these little things, and Paul says, I want to give you the big theological buffet that grounds everything you do. This is what Paul is doing in chapter 1. We need this. We desperately need this. Because our vision of Jesus Christ oftentimes has become very small. And I'd like to, to posit why that is. I think it's because we're still living in the city of Ephesus. I'll share what I mean by that in a second, but Paul is, he's, he is going to get practical. So I'm kind of like biting the bullet for the rest of the series. I'm giving you guys the big theology. We've got the other pastors coming in here going to share a lot more practical things. But you have to start here. I would encourage you this week, every day, just read Ephesians 3 through 14. Just start letting it drip into your heart. 
drip into your vision that you are the beloved of Christ and that God has given you every spiritual blessing in the heavens and this is what matters. And so Paul, in chapters 2 through 6, he's going to turn his focus onto attacks on the gospel, on attacks of love, on attacks on unity that, that out, people outside and inside the church are having. He's going to focus his attention on spiritual warfare and on right relationships. And again, why does he start getting practical with all those things? I think he gets practical with all those things is because the church at Ephesus is living under the shadow of the temple of Artemis, a thousand cult prostitutes performing thousands of services daily to exalt a goddess of fertility made of silver and gold. And Paul says, how can you forget that in three years we were unraveling this through what right relationships and loving relationships looked like? The Ephesian church was planted and formed and transformed the city so that the love of God stood in direct opposition to the love of Artemis. So again, how does all of this intersect with you? I will ask you that simple question. Where is your alignment? Are you in the city of Ephesus? Are you in the cities of the world? Or are you in the city of God? the kingdom of God. See, the city of Ephesus, it's full of libraries and gyms and baths and the pursuit of wealth with all of its trappings under the worship of success. I mean, sorry, I misspoke. I meant Artemis. They're worshiping Artemis, not success. My bad. Or are they worshiping success? And Artemis is just what they pay token attention to. And wow, does that not impact our culture and our city? Are we sitting in churches paying token worship to God and pursuing success in every form and fashion that it entails? Because church, that better not be what we're doing. Because that is not going to sustain or redeem or transform us. And we're going to be in church week after week wondering why everything in church feels so empty Maybe it's because you're running after Artemis, after success, and after wealth, and the rich, beautiful relationships of God, the theology that Paul spells out in chapter 1, the beauty of the church that he gives that you should be all about is not what you're paying attention to. Paul is calling the city of Ephesus by the end of chapter 1. It's a prophetic confrontation. It says you're going to have to pick between the spiritual blessings and the beauty of the church or the trappings of the city of Ephesus. Which do you want? And the people of God and us and you sitting right here in these seats face that choice every day. It's the same choice. Do we go after success and wealth and everything that entertains us in culture, just like the baths and the libraries and the theaters did in Ephesus? Or do we go after the things of God and the church of God? And isn't this remarkable how in several years God puts this small group of people who love him, who have this crazy belief that he rose from the dead, and they begin to reorient an entire city to where people in the city are walking away from the baths and the libraries and the cult prostitutes 
and the entertainment and the success and the marketplaces. And they're saying, I'd rather trade all of that for a group of people that loves one another and loves God. This is our same choice. And we're going to be faced with the next five chapters of this book. How do we live that out? Because again, God loves us and we are in the beloved, which means he wants to change, redeem, transform, and sustain all of our relationships. And Paul's going to tell us how to do that. One quick um, slide for you guys, if you want to look up there real quick. Next slide. Cool. This is the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. One of the seven wonders of the world. One column remains standing, and that one column is actually jury-rigged from about ten other columns. And this is what Paul is saying. You can live in the cities of the world, but if you do, your life will be in ruins spiritually. Or you can live in the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and your relationships will flourish. And so Paul is going to tell us how those relationships flourish, how the relationships between children and parents flourish, how the relationships between singles are meant to flourish, how the relationships of people within the church are meant to flourish, how wives and husbands are meant to flourish together how bosses and employees are meant to flourish together. This is where Paul's going, and it's going to be beautiful. I cannot wait as God unfurls his wisdom for us over the next five weeks. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for your grace. I thank you, God, that you've chosen, um, chosen the weak things in the world, the church, to bring down and topple the mighty things. Father, I thank you that um, you sustain all of our earthly relationships. And God, I thank you that we get to be a church reflecting your renewed picture of humanity towards us and towards you. Lord, would we be excited about learning about you, God, so that the knowledge of Jesus Christ would fill our vision. In your name we pray, amen.